You're listening to Freshly Brewed, Episode 8. I'm your host, Jeff. If you've been listening to this podcast, you know that I spent a lot of time talking about coffee. But there's actually another drink that I love, and that drink is wine. I love the taste of wine. I love that little buzz you get when you drink it. I love wineries and winemakers and sommeliers. So today's episode is going to be episode one of a multi-part series on wine. And over the next few episodes, if I'm still standing, I'm going to be uncorking information about wine that many of us wonder about. In the first episode of this series, we're going to cover, in a very simple and intuitive way, some of those must-know elements of wine consumption. This includes info about pairings, pricing, wine categories, understanding and knowing how to describe what you're actually drinking, and some common myths and tips about wine. The following episodes will get into areas about the business of wine, and also a little bit more about winemaking and winery operations. At the end of this, you're going to hopefully sound a tad bit smarter about all things vino. And today, for part one, we are going to dive in with not one, not two, but three sommeliers. So, pour yourself a glass of wine, swirl it around, pretend you know what you're looking for, and let's get going with the podcast. Ladies and gentlemen, you're listening to Freshly Brewed. Here's your host, Jeff Fenton. Freshly Brewed, episode eight, and part one of Freshly Brewed's first ever multi-part series on wine. And I don't know how I pulled this off, but I am joined by three sommeliers, Ian Stoddart, is it Stoddard or Stoddart? I think I've already, I think I'm drunk Stoddard. already. Ian Stoddard. <laughs> it's all good. Stoddard, yeah. Giacomo Padula. Yeah. And this one's easy, Savannah Robinson. I am so pleased to have you guys, uh, have you guys in it. We are in a four-way video slash audio conference. Welcome, uh, welcome to the podcast, guys. Oh, pleasure having us. Maybe to start, we can actually just go around the virtual square table here and introduce ourselves. And Giacomo, because you were you were the most punctual, you can uh, you can start first. Italian, just saying. <laughs> uh, yeah, <laughs> sure. Um, my name is Giacomo. I'm a bartender sommelier. I've been uh, a very long time in the hospitality, seventeen years, and I. I kind of work in the area of hospitality in different restaurants. I don't focus on just one restaurant, but I like to work around. Um, yeah, pretty much that's it. That That's going to be a tough accent to top, Savannah. <laughs> <laughs> I had the easiest name to pronounce, so I should be the easiest to understand. <laughs> this is true. Um, so, uh, yeah, I'm have most recently worked as a sommelier in Australia, in Victoria, on the Mornington Peninsula at a restaurant called 10 Minutes by Tractor. Um, I'm also a pretty hardcore yogi and a yoga instructor, and I love the bridge between uh, wine and yoga. They're both very, very ancient, beautiful practices. So, I love yeah. that. Last, last but certainly not least all right um yeah so i'm ian uh as everyone knows me as 
Um, and yeah, I've been working in the service industry for about 15 years. Um, also I've worked quite a bit in, in film industry, um, hosted uh, a few, several events and stuff. And uh, yeah, I'm a small in Toronto and uh, I work at John and Son's Oyster House, which is downtown. A uh, great little kind of hole in the wall. A uh, lot of fun to work there. And uh, yeah, and I love food and wine, love the, the pairing aspect of it. And um, yeah, that's, I guess that, that that's me. So maybe I'll actually throw my first question to you, Ian. A lot of people hear the word sommelier and know that a sommelier is associated with wine, but I think that's the extent of a lot of people's knowledge. What is a sommelier and what do you do? Um, well, so I'll put it in, you know, and how I would like to, like how I, I see it. And um, it's a, you know, a sommelier is a, a steward of wine, um, you know, looking after the wine at a restaurant for service. Um, but the way that I like to see like a sommelier is um, when people come into a restaurant is helping them guide, guide the patrons towards um, like the best experience possible. And it doesn't necessarily mean it has to be wine, but just, you know, in terms of, you know, kind of guiding the patron in towards of what best to have with their food. Um, so, you know, that's something that I really like. And, you know, a lot of people may not, think that wine and food pairing or beer and food pairing or cocktail and food pairing um, is important, but it's like, you know, it's a subtle difference that might change from having a good meal to having a great meal. And you may not even realize why, but it, it could be because it's the small A has guided you in the right path towards having the best experience. So I think it's just a small A is more, is just someone who is there to guide the patron towards having a great experience um, with food and beverage. Let's, and let's keep a totally open. I mean, anyone can jump in uh, either Giacomo or Savannah. Yeah. Any color to add to that? I totally agree with him. I think that at the end of the day, I think that I'm, I'm a server and a bartender and a sommelier for me is just, it's something that, basically is an extra layer of knowledge that you have in the wine sector. But at the end of the day, you are, you are basically an ambassador in a, in a restaurant and you're you are trying your best to give the, the guests the best experience. It could be through wine tasting, it could be through wine pairing, it could be at the end of the day, you are there and you know the restaurant and what it offers in, from the inside out. And with that experience, I feel that you, you can help your guests to, to maximize the experience, to get the best out of it. And, it, sorry. and to add to that, um, like a really important thing too is, um, is really reading the table as a small A, is to understand because, you know, I've had when I've gone into places and they, they're automatically trying to tell you what you should be having and, you know, why you should be having and all this stuff. And sometimes... You know, you just, you might want a certain thing or you maybe don't feel like you want to go like a certain route. So it's really important as a sommelier to really read your table and try to figure out what is best for them. Um, you know, it, it really is guiding them towards having a great experience and not for you to just spew out information and be a know-it-all because you also have to be careful that the people that you're serving know more than you. <laughs> so. Yeah. 
I would say, <laughs> in there too, to say that I think one of the uh, most important parts of the job is to is to be humble and that you are there to really um, wine can be very, very intimidating, even when you have a lot of knowledge on the subject. Uh, and, you know, even if we were to do a, a tasting today, we could taste that wine again tomorrow and come up with maybe some different notes on it. And that wine may have evolved overnight. So it's, it's constantly evolving and that your job as a sommelier is to come, come to a table and serve your guest with, with that in mind and that they, they might have some knowledge, some knowledge. Um, they may have a lot, they may have absolutely none. And just to kind of start from, from ground zero and, uh, and that the whole, the, I think the whole point is to enjoy, to enjoy yourself. And if you start with that as a baseline, that's, pretty safe yeah place. i agree i don't think like is a, like i think that the, the magic trick here is like to not pass like i'm trying to force the education of the wine on you that's not the point i don't think it's the point at least like if you're not interested like if you, you might just have your own taste you might have your own um, idea about wine and at the end of the day you're the guest you're right. I can try to make your experience better from my point of view, but your taste is sacred. Whatever you like, generally speaking, if you're really convinced about something, I like my. I, I can't force you. I can't tell you, no, this wine should go with this. This is the wrong decision. It doesn't work like that. I think that it's more like the serving part that comes out there. As Ian was saying, read the table, like respect the table mm -hmm. at the end of the day. You are there to make them fun. You're there to have them have a good experience, not to give them a lesson about wine. That's not the point. And and you want to and you also like on that, and this can go with probably what we're going to be talking about further down in this conversation is is paying attention to key words that people are saying because a lot of people don't really know what like their descriptives may not like what send you in a direction. So if they're like, oh, I don't I don't like Chardonnay then you're going, okay, well, you probably don't like oaked, like an oaked white, like a Chardonnay, because that's kind of like the stereotypical kind of things. So you're like, okay, so maybe they don't want to go along that route or something oaked, but they want to go, but that doesn't necessarily mean that they don't like Chablis. So, which is, which is the Chardonnay grape. So it's just like listening to the table and trying to find keywords to help guide them to almost helping them make the decision. And they feel that they've, they are they've chosen the right wine off of the wine list i just have to ask do people actually know what they're looking for because I, I dine a lot with my dad and i actually i think it would be interesting if i got him on the phone at some point in this podcast and asked him because he always says oh i love a full-bodied red but i don't know if he actually knows what that means and dad i know you're listening and i'm, I'm sorry <laughs> do do people really know what they're looking for or are there just certain things that they're comfortable with that they they know to ask for i i find uh, that people it, like will go with they, they'll if they're with friends they'll get something that they think is like the most like that will stand out and show that it's something like for example a lot of people come in they'll order like a really full body like cabernet sauvignon and i'm like mm -hmm. 
you're having it with oysters, you know, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's not the best thing. And, and so you try to kind of guide it for, for me personally. So people come in and yeah, they'll say like, I like full body. I go full bodied. I, I won't, you know, I don't like something lighter. And I think I find that if you can give them a taste of something and maybe just like guide them through it. And I think that's why it's important that if your wine's by the glass, that you're allowed to kind of give people try like little tastes of it. And you're like, here, try this. If you don't like it, then I'll grab you your, you know, your cab for your oysters. But if you like this, maybe you can try this out and see how that goes. So I think people go in with a, a preset notion of what they like. Um, yeah. But I also find I on date, oh, sorry, I was going to, lastly, I was going to say, I find on date night, people some like will come in, a couple will come in and they'll be like, you know, lead us through what you think and then mm -hmm. you kind of roll with it. Yeah. And that's, that's awesome. Cause you're like, here we go. Yeah. <laughs> I don't have any experience doing that. Hmm. Sarcastic for those who are listening. Anna. Back to another kind of role of the sommelier is to really have a diverse um, vocabulary when it comes to being able to describe a wine because a lot of people do know what they like, but they don't know how to say it. So things like aromatic, fruity, or, or they say, you know, I, I like sweet wine or I hate sweet. And, but what they perceive to be sweet may actually be sugar, or it just might be really overwhelming um, aromatics of, of ripe fruits but the wine on the palate might actually be totally dry. And often people correlate what's on the nose to what they think is going to be on the palate rather than smelling the wine, tasting the wine and thinking about what they taste afterwards. Um, so I think it's really important if you can take the time, it all depends on how busy your restaurant is and, and what's going on around you. But if you have the opportunity to give a few descriptive words um, and, and sit down or stand beside them and, and watch them, uh, or be with them while they taste it and figure out what it is, the things that they do like about it or what they don't like about it and give them the, try and deduce or give them some vocabulary to uh, use later. Uh, in my experience, like I, I like to keep, uh, my job diversified. I work in three different restaurants. One is high fine dining. One is fast paced. I would say fine dining, but definitely casual fine and dining. And one, and one is incredibly casual, very fast, very in and out, uh, pizza, pasta, very easy, very easy restaurant. So it depends like with the type of restaurant, the clientele change a lot. In the very high end fine dining, I found that most people have already an idea of what they want. They don't like to experiment too much. They've been drinking Cabernet Sauvignon from California for 30 years. They wonder, maybe your dad, Canada. It depends. It depends by it depends by by the table. Like if somebody for me wants something, he wants a Cabernet Sauvignon from California, I might go in the direction that he that he wants, but maybe so offering something that is similar in characteristic, but not the same wine. Because otherwise, what's the point to drink always the same wine, right? Unless you try something that. It's similar, but it's not the same. As Ian and Ian Savannah was saying, in a couple nights are different. Couple nights are fun because most time the people wants you to to guide them, wants to make this fun. 
but depends by the but depends by the guest for me. It's uh, it's a lot on the guest in the meaning that wine at the end you can enjoy it by itself and you can enjoy it with food. If you have your your particular flavor of wine, your particular uh, favorite grape, and you want to go with that grape because you want to see the game on uh, TV or whatever the case is, and drink the wine, I might give you exactly what you want, or I might suggest you something similar. But if you're having it with food, I might go in the other direction. I might try to suggest you something that goes with what you ordered, or suggest you something on the food menu that goes with your palate in, in the opposite way. So... It's um it's a balancing game. I have a few regulars who love wine and you know who come in like for lunch or for like after work or for dinner. And what I do is I bring them, I do a blind I for fun, we'll do a blind tasting with them. I'll be like, "Hey, like I have this new wine that that we have on the list. Just try it. What do you think?" And they'll try it and they'll like it, but I'll speak it loud enough that people around them are hearing it. And so then they're trying it. They're saying, oh, it's really good. They like it. And the next thing you know, someone else next to them is trying it. And that's actually worked. And I've done that. Like, for example, last time I did it was with a Greek Chardonnay. And there were a lot of people who didn't want to have a Greek Chardonnay. And then I had a few people who were trying it and they ended up really liking it. And that ended up being one of our top selling Chardonnays for about two months. And so there, there's just there's different ways of trying to get everyone to experiment. But it works in, at John and Sons because it's only yeah. 40 seater. You're almost like like spreading it like a virus, almost. Giacomo, that is too soon, my man. From Italy, we'll let it we'll let it slide. We'll let it slide. He's spreading kindness as well. Yes, yes, my bad. You you told me free speech. (laughs) Just leave on a high note. Yeah, Yeah, let's end it there. Um, I I actually think this would be a. a great segue into getting into some of the things that I know a lot of people think about or want to know. And the first one has to do with classification. So I've found that, as you said, Ian, some menus are just red and white. So we know wines can be divided red and white, uh, which makes you as sommeliers probably laugh because that's the most you know, basic uh, categorization. I will often talk with people about wine in terms of regions. I've I've heard people talk about it in terms of grape variety. Um, with my dad, it's like there's a full-bodied Chianti and then every other wine. There's like two categories for him. What is, I mean, are there many different types of classification systems and what are the most common? And maybe Savannah, we'll, we'll start with you. We'll go bottom right this time. Uh, yes, there are many different classification systems. Um, and probably one that we're most familiar with here in uh, Canada is VQA. Um, or in, uh, if you're looking at Italian wines on the shelf, DOC or DOCG. Um, so these stand for like denomination of uh, a con- controlled denomination of origin or a guaranteed controlled denomination of origin. Um, basically, I would say the more uh, I- precise information that's given on a bottle, not the amount of pretty writing descriptive language that describes a wine, but the precise 
uh, information like um, like a designation like that, like VQA uh, or DOC or DOCG, um, uh, then followed by perhaps a, an appellation, maybe even a specific area within uh, an appellation or or even right down to a vineyard or or between an appellation and a vineyard and a state. So the more um, the more information kind of that you have typically equates to the some the quality that's in the bottle or just the more precise um, area that the grapes are coming from. So if I just quickly the the highest level would be those defined regions like VQA, DOCG. That's like the that's the top of the funnel, if you will. And then we get narrower and narrower based on that. Exactly. And those are those are national and international examples. It's not like like it's not enough. Let's say it's it's a good start to understand what the label says. But it's so it's so complicated. It's so specific by country. So it's so diversified that it's yes. There's like different uh, categories of wine, different groups of wine. Something is better, something is worse. But usually, like it's uh, it's too long. It's too hard to explain. Like you have to know the classification. You go half by memory and half by knowing what the classification on the bottle means. Just to keep in mind that all of these systems in every country were, are put in place as regulatory bodies, like in any industry. And they're there really to, as a, to promote um, health and, and good practices, farming practices, um, and, uh, and, and sometimes to encourage or preserve uh, traditions in an in an area um, or grapes that have been grown there for hundreds of years so they're uh, they're plate just to to remember that they're they are um, they can be very difficult to understand but if you see a, a designation on a bottle um, just to to keep that in mind that it does mean a certain level of quality and then also to have an open mind that there are a lot of rule breakers out there and we need a lot of rule breakers too. And that there are some fantastic and amazing wines that don't follow any of those guidelines uh, set out by different regions and different countries. Um, but it's kind of up to the, the consumer to do their research to find those those wines or the sommelier to introduce you to, to some interesting and unique and that's uh, that's product. the key though is to you you really do need to do some research if you know you want it's either you can listen to the sommelier and maybe you'll learn something new at, at the restaurant or before you go to your bottle shop like the lcbo or you know if you're in another country a bottle shop then just to kind of have an idea of you know maybe do a little bit of research beforehand be like oh i'm looking for like uh a, like a, a wine that is going to go well with seafood um, so what, what wines are that and look it up and then, and just do like a little bit of research before you go to your bottle shop, but also the people who work there, if you go to the LCBO and the SOM who works in vintages 
or if you go to a bottle shop, just ask them. That's why they're there. And I know a lot of people are intimidated by that, but like we enjoy those questions and when, and there's no, there's no stupid question. I know everyone's taught that as a kid, but it, it is really true because it, like that allows us really, we get like pleasantly excited for that because we're like, Oh, okay, here we go. Like this will be fun to like try to figure out to help someone understand the palette that they have and what they're looking for. And if they want to try something new. So I would encourage that you ask questions and do research and that will help you understand because it is very confusing and we could go on and on and on. So to summarize that, that very fruitful discussion, that's my first wine pun of the, of the uh, evening. <laughs> ask your sommelier and classification is not as simple or black and white as we think. No. Now, no. moving to an area that I know people love to talk about is price and the effect on quality and age and the effect on quality. And I, like the other, you know, not so educated wine drinkers out there will just assume the older the wine, the better it is, the more expensive the wine, the better it is. I've heard rumblings that, you know, a wine can be over the hill. There's a peak. Someone's got to debunk this myth. Help me understand, help our millions of listeners out there understand the age quality relationship and the price quality relationship. Maybe Giacomo, we'll start with you. I'll do the, I'll do the age and quality relationship uh, to start then. It's not, I'll, let's put it like this. Not all the grapes age in the same way. Certain grapes age better than other grapes. Certain age are, it's better to age certain type of grapes than other kind of grapes. You won't get the same result. It's not because a wine is aged that it's going to taste good. An example is Cabernet Sauvignon. Cabernet Sauvignon age very well, but uh, other grapes don't age that well. You might have a very, uh, a very good Cabernet Sauvignon from California that aged 10 years, and you might have um, another grape that another... I don't know, let's put it... Uh, like a Gamay. A uh, Gamay, a Beaujolais, Gamay, yeah, a Beaujolais designation does not age that well. Some wine are better, are better, are meant to be consumed as soon, uh, in the first couple of years, mm. and some wine are not meant to be. And again, like there's, a, there's an interesting um, discussion about this in the region of uh, Piemonte for uh, the Barolo. Mm -hmm. You can check it online. I'm sure if you look at YouTube, Barolo region, you'll find something. And uh, there's two main, uh, there's a lot of producers, but basically the what happened after the 60s, before uh, everything was, uh, the tradition was sacred. People were using the same technique for hundreds of years. The grape needs between uh, maceration uh, 26 and 28 days, big uh, containers, uh, long aging process, um, and then after the 70, for uh, different reasons, uh, you know, like the industry, the modernization of the industry, the, the time that became something very important, the timeline to produce more wine in a shorter period of time. With the same grade, there are, there are other producers who tried different techniques, like smaller uh, containers, faster maceration of the wines. The results at the end of the day is different, but it's different for somebody who is an expert in wine. The wine does the wine shows the characters of the land, the wine shows the character of the um, the type of storage. So it's very like um, 
how can I put it? Like, it's not necessarily meant that something that it's aged is going to be good. Something that it's meant to be aged is probably going to be good. So how does a how does a consumer then figure this out? Because I think people go in droves to liquor stores or to restaurants wanting the oldest. And but clearly what you're saying is that some are meant to be aged, some are not, some maybe there's a sweet spot. How how does one find this out? Ask their sommelier. Uh, you, yep. <laughs> <laughs> Ask one of you guys. To, be, to be fair though, like a are lot there, of the stuff that you're gonna a lot of the stuff you're gonna buy at the LCBO, you can just you can drink. Like it it's really you know that not i mean you'll if you spend the money you might want to you, you can consider aging it but uh you know you can also look at like buying like a few bottles of one varietal of the same mm. same bottle and then trying that how it is now and then try it maybe in two years then try it in four years and see um but it also goes with like with aging you know it has to do with a lot of like how the wine is made right so you know, depending on like if, if oak is used or if it has high acidity, high, high, like residual sugar, those are all variables towards aging. Um, if you have like a Pinot Grigio, drink it, drink it now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. like that's, so you have to, I mean, if you go like, yeah, like a cap can like, can carry some age to it. But um, like I have a, I have a friend who had a Rioja um, and she had it for 25 years and she didn't quite store it right. And she asked me, I was like, yes, it's probably not going to be good anymore. And we opened it and it, it wasn't good. And like, that's usually you're looking at like a 10 to 15 year kind of mark. Um, but I, I, like, like I said, if you go in the LCBO and, and you're spending like a, like a reasonable amount of money, you don't really need to age it that like you don't have to you can but it's not necessarily imperative that you do um so is there a is there a rule of thumb for like let's say we so no so we got some we got some heads uh, shaking on the video here but, but is there a let's say for the most commonly consumed groups or for the average consumer who's going into a liquor store by the way for those listening who aren't in canada or ontario lcbo is like our our kind of one legally mandated uh, liquor store for the average consumer going into a liquor store. Is there any rule of thumb to keep in mind or it really just depends. And that's actually the rule to keep in mind. They need to ask the, the, the staff member there and do it based on the grape or the varietal. I would say um, definitely a varietal has a, um, a big impact on whether or not the wine can be can be aged, but it's predominantly how the wine is treated after fermentation in the winery and the vessel that is is stored or aged in at the winery. Many wines um, that go from their fermentation vessel to straight into a steel tank, unless it's say Riesling with really high acidity, these wines, you probably want to drink them now. They're usually released uh, the the next vintage after they've been made. Um, but wines that go into oak, uh, oak slowly, it's a porous vessel 
clay is a porous vessel. Um, so it's slowly allowing oxygen into the wine over time. And the, slow, the more slowly that the wine is able to breathe, the more resilient it becomes to oxygen. Uh, and, and the more, the, basically the stronger and the more endurance the wine has. So a wine that is aged in a large, large oak cask, say a thousand liters, that's got about where the, the vessel itself is about three inches thick on all, all sides, is going to have, is going to have much less, um, a long, long, slow penetration of oxygen versus a smaller barrel that's an inch thick. So the slow oxygenation of wine will make it last longer. So I'm, I'm going to then, I'm going <laughs> to make a comment, which is that by the sounds of it, A, it really isn't, again, that black and white or that clear cut. It's not just like, oh, older, better. But what I would also take from that as a consumer is it's almost about developing the relationship with the winery and even that brand, because it sounds like that's how you're going to get a sense of how they're vessels, as you said, affect the taste. And to Ian's point, actually trying different versions of that same one to, to get a sense of the impact. And if you Google or if you just read the back of the bottle, sometimes on the back of the bottle or the front of the bottle, like Chardonnay is a pretty great example. It'll often say if it's unoaked or if it's oaked. Um, other wines, red wines, you'll probably find more on the back whether there's it spent ten months in oak, or for example, it might have a little a little spiel on how much time it spent in oak. But if you go to the website, most most wineries will give you some information on that on that right there. The, the, key, what, the, and, the key is like looking. It is for like you know a lot of it is like oak influence as well. You know, in, in terms of in with with aging, it's not always it's not black and white, but that that will play a part into into its aging unless you go to like a Riesling which has very high acidity and, and high residual sugar. Yeah. What about price? Price, it does have a certain like it definitely plays a role with it. And for all like the people who I talk to, um and I I try to like play, you know, I I, I try to talk, like a lot of people that I talk to pay around like under $40 for a bottle of wine. Right. And a lot, and, but I, I tell them the best price point, in my opinion, for the average person who is about is $20, but the LCBO, this is like Canadian prices is $20. If you play around $20, you can find a lot of really interesting wine. If you spend $9 on a bottle of wine, chances are it's going to be a $9 ball. Like it's, it's, there's going to be fault to it. It's, you know, it, you're just, it's probably, it, it represents the price. But as soon as you hit around $20, you can find some really interesting finds with wine. And if you start doing a little bit of your own research, you can, you can start hitting some pretty interesting bottles. But then price also plays a, 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 a huge role on where the wine is produced. So yes. as, a, as an example, if you look at like New Zealand, which is very well known for like Sauvignon Blanc. If you spend $30 on the Sauvignon Blanc, you can get a really nice Sauvignon Blanc, 
But if you spend $30 on a Pinot Noir from Central Otago in New Zealand, you're going to get an average Pinot Noir. But if you spend $50, you're going to get a, a, pretty, mm-hmm. a pretty good one. So then that price fluctuates. Um, for example, another example is if you look at like a, a Cabernet Sauvignon from Napa, it's going to be very expensive because land is really expensive. Grapes are expensive. Right. There's a lot of prices. But who was mimicking Napa? Chile. So a Chilean cab, if you do a little bit of research, if you spend 40, let's say $30 on a Chilean cab, you can get a pretty good Chilean cab. But $30 on a Napa cab, then you're going, that's dropping down to like, (laughs) then you're going down in quality. So it's, it's price does have a role in where it's produced. And that's why we call it satellite regions of regions are slightly outside of like the really well-known ones because the winemakers probably still have the same education, same kind of like almost a very similar climate in a lot of retrospects. And they're just not as like famous. So that's when, if you can find like a, a winery that's just outside of the region, their price point is going to be considerably lower than something within it. Yeah. One other thing to add is that price often is related, uh, not always, but in to the to the age of a wine. The more that you have to hold hold a wine in a barrel at a winery, it, you're basically paying for rent, <laughs> right? So fascinating because it's like so many variables are going into even no, the real estate. It's the so complicated. Yeah, I people just think it's like higher price, better quality. No. There's so many elements to it. Yeah. Some wines are meant to be drunk right away and you can get them to market right away. Some wines are better five, 10 years down the line and you have to pay for the management of that, uh, of that uh, duration. You're paying, so, you're paying for the name as well. Right. And it's like, that's that's right. Let's put it like that. Let me ask you a question. What's the best country in the world for wine for everybody's opinion? Most of the time, France. France is one of the best countries for wine. That's the second, but can, uh, France is considered <laughs> the best country in general for wine, correct? But when you pay something, like when you pay a Pinot Noir from uh, a legendary uh, winery in France, let's say that you have eight grand to spend on wine, you are paying for a legendary wine. Think you're paying for a branding. You're paying mm-hmm. for something. You're not just paying for the wine. That's not just you're not just paying for the alcoholic liquid that it's in the bottle. It doesn't work like that. There's so many variables in this. There's so many X in the equation. Where it's done, how is that who's doing that wine? Which style? What's the name on the bottle? Is a wine that's been around for 45 years? If a wine has been around for 80 years, that means that the roots of the um, of the vineyard are so deep inside the land that that wine the same grape the same spot if you plant a new vineyard in the same spot is going to taste deeply different because one it's very young the roots don't go that that down in the in the land right in the earth so they don't catch all those flavors that you can catch at instead of six feet 12 feet by an example so there's so many variables that price tells you a lot and tells you nothing really. I, I, there's one thing that I've always said, and I want any of you to tell me if this is wrong. When I 
talk about wine with and pricing with people, I often say that the marginal benefit at higher prices. See, I've already had two glasses of this wine, so I'm already having trouble articulating. I, I think we're all cheating because I and, think you're yeah. supposed to taste it, but this no, wine comes up I, I bought the wrong bottle. Cheers. So, <laughs> so my, okay, let me try this again. Um, as a price gets higher and higher, I have this theory that the marginal benefit diminishes. Whereas like if you go from a $8 bottle to a $20 bottle, you will notice the difference. But if I'm going from a $20 bottle to a $2,000 bottle, that the, the marginal benefit will be less than that difference in cost. Is that, is that totally unfounded? Um, it's yes and no. <laughs> Because yeah, this whole podcast, this is what I say. I say this to people who, when I have talked about this, is if you buy a $60 bottle of wine, it better be good. Like, you know, I, I think like I enjoy because I have a lot of friends who reach out to me and, you know, family members and stuff. I enjoy trying to find the bottles that are great under $40. Like that's the yeah. fun of it because you can like you re- like then you're really hitting and missing because a lot of wineries make really good bottles at that price point in Canadian prices. But like if I if you know I expect a good bottle of wine if I'm spending six and I just yeah the margin like if you go over like fifty dollars it also goes back to like the region and where it's made and stuff like like a for example the cat like a cab from Napa Valley, but. It, that's like like i i just think like once you once you get into that higher price point yeah like it's it's they should all be good they should be so that's why it is more like that that nine dollars to twenty dollars there's a huge difference and a lot of that has to do with how the winery is like kept like how good are the grapes are they adding anything to the winemaking how like like what are they doing with it how clean is the wine the the production like how is that all going like you know, I had a friend who's like, I drink, he, he drinks like nine to $10 bottles of wine. He kept saying to me, he's like, I never feel good the next day. And I was like, spend $20 a bottle and see what happened. Mm. And he told me like a month later, he's like, man, like I feel way better. Like after having it. And, and it's not like he was like crushing all this wine. It's just, it's just, there's less like influence in terms of like, it's all, it's more natural, like the, the, what's being used. So it's just better winemaking technique. And then once you get like higher, then it can become like other, you know, like Yakima was saying is like, if you buy like a, like if you buy like a, you know, um, a first growth from Bordeaux, you're buying a piece of art essentially. And that's why a lot of people don't drink it. They have it to show their friends. They bring them down to their cell and like, see this, this is awesome. Oh no, we're not drinking that tonight. We're gonna be drinking this. And but would it taste amazing? Like, would that taste incredible if they did no, have it? If they, if they didn't sell it right, if then then no, if they didn't do the proper, you know, if they didn't take care of it properly, or if it passed its peak. And and two, not everyone loves Bordeaux blends. Like everyone yeah. has different wines that they right. love. That's not a wine. If you ask me where like what's my one of my favorite things to drink i'm going over to italy like i'm not even going to to france um so i think like if you if you can understand quality then you can enjoy uh a wine or at least appreciate it but i don't 
I don't think just because it's from Bordeaux or a specific area means you're going to like it. If you don't, everyone has completely different tastes. And that's why it's it's great to try to understand like what you like, you know? And and so if you do like a full body wine and, you know, and if you can raise, like if you can find, you know, like that $20 threshold or, you know, whatever it is, then just play around and, and experiment and buy, like if you buy, if you have a bottle of wine every Friday night with dinner, one Friday, try like, and just make it at $20, right? And then one Friday you get a cab from, uh, you get a Chilean cab. The next Friday, you get a $20 Pinot Noir from like Germany. The next day, you get a $20 um, like Syrah from Australia, like, or Shiraz from Australia. Like tr- try that and then see and just kind of experiment because you're not like emptying your wallet, but you also could find like yeah. beautiful wines. Like I had a German, like a Spaperganger, which is Pinot Noir from Germany. And it's not hugely popular here. These like the Pinot Noirs from Germany. And it was delicious and it was $20. And it reminded me of a Pinot Noir from Central Otago that would cost me like $40 to $50. Moving on to something a bit more practical in terms of uh, hopefully it's a little bit more clear cut. Although there's this part of me now that's like, there's no way what I'm about to ask is going to have a clear cut answer. That's okay. Um, So as you were answering, I was you know, I have a glass of white wine here and I was, I was swirling it, which I don't even know if you're supposed to do with white wine. I was sniffing it. I took a couple sips. I'm thinking, okay, when I'm done with this bottle, like I'm going to pop the cork back in, put it in the fridge. And I want to just walk through like a white and a red and what you're supposed to do with each after you've opened it. Like I'd love to just, and, and I can see a smirk on all your face, like, oh, this is not going to be an easy question to answer. No. But maybe maybe we can pick like a straightforward white, straightforward red. And how do you, you know, do you decant it? Do you, do you, does it, does it need a certain type of glass? Do I sniff it, swirl it? And then how do I store it after? And for how long can I consume it? And Giacomo let's kindly let's, has his hand up. Let's debunk some myth. If a wine is young, two years old, three years old, don't decant it. There's no point. White or there's red? White or red, there's no point. For no me. decanting if it's two years old. Most of the time, a wine that it's older takes time to open up. Okay. In the meaning that you open a bottle of wine that is 10 years old, you're putting, the decanter is a vessel. You're putting the, the entire bottle of wine in the decanter because you're allowing the, one, the wine to open up. How long do I decant for? Temp, temp, not, well, you decant, you put it you leave it there for between 15 minutes or could be eight or could be uh, even an hour. Depends by, by the wine, by the grape, how old is the grape. Depends by a lot of factors. But generally, you are simply allowing the wine to open up. White wine, and red I decant? Not, well, if you want to decant, no, I wouldn't decant a white. I will keep it uh, on ice or I will put it in the bottle. Again, depending by the grape. Every grape has their own particular weight. They're supposed to be enjoyed in a specific certain way that goes behind your t- beyond your taste. Then you can have your own particular taste. If you like very full body red wine chilled, go nuts. But it's not the best way to have it at all. But uh, I'm gonna. I might have to slightly disagree though on on with red because if you have a young red and it, and if you don't think it's necessarily ready decanting it and having it oxidated a bit actually helps speed up the aging. So it actually would lessen the tannins without could be too astringent and gripping. So if anything, 
I mean, and then with an older wine, you're doing it almost to remove the sediment, right? Yeah, but also with an older wine, if you've got like a really, really old Pinot Noir, a wine that um, is maybe a little bit more delicate, it, it, depending if we're talking like 15, 20 years, you, you also don't want to kill it by introducing a bunch of oxygen by decanting yeah. it. That wine could be really, really fragile. Yeah, if the wine, if it's a, it's a bigger wine with lots of tannins, if uh, even if it's if if it's youthful and lots of tannins and and just kind of bold flavors, giving it a little bit of oxygen is going to help it settle into itself. Do you refrigerate a red or a white before serving? Uh, that's. Uh, you no, you would have it if your cellar, you'd have it at a certain temperature. Um, you might, you were going to have like a, like a sparkling or a light white. You're going to serve at like three to five degrees, uh, an aromatic wine. You're going to serve at like five to 13. And then you, and then if you go like a little bit more full bodied, it's going to be more like room temp, like just under room temp. And then with reds, it's like a Beaujolais can serve slightly chilled. Pinot Noir, you can serve slightly chilled. Um, but then if the the higher the alcohol and like in terms of like the full bodiedness, you'd want to serve at like room temperature. Um, but I would always like you definitely want to store uh between uh usually between 10 and I think it's like 10 and 18 degrees is, is Celsius. Yeah. In terms yeah. of in terms of like your storage. But yeah, like you don't want to serve like an oak chardonnay and just pull it right out of the fridge and give it to them. Cause they're not, it's not going to taste, they're not going to get any of the taste. It's got to like open up um, in terms. And that's because it's just too cold. So, and then, yeah, go ahead. Yep. No, no, sorry. Go, please. But, but storing wine, a lot of people like cooling it down, slows down any sort of like chemical reaction. So you don't want like putting a red wine. If you can like, uh, extract the oxygen by you know like there's a lot of like pump like sealers and stuff if you can extract the oxygen and then put it in the fridge you know most wine you're good for like up to a week unless you're talking like sparkling then you're looking at like three days but you roughly like consume three to five i would say like three to five days for white and red i mean yeah we're gonna say that because <laughs> you know, you, um, yeah you can pump the wine though. You can create a vacuum. There's like little uh, right. that yeah. lasts way longer. I would say for me, a red wine, even if I pumped it after five, six days, that's it. It reaches peak in the, the fridge. Yeah. No, in the, no, no. Red wine, you don't keep it in the. Yes, I wouldn't keep it in the fridge. The red wine, though, wouldn't. when you when you don't you don't store your red wine when it's opened in the fridge. No, because I like to see how it change in those five days. So basically, if you pump, you take the oxygen out. The wine is gonna is it doesn't really. It's kind of like a peak, for me at least. When you start to drink the red, you have certain flavors. Wait two hours, those flavors are changed. Mm. Wait two days, those flavors are changing again, and then they go down in this peak, and they and they start to fade away. But don't you? Start, you don't recognize. But you don't. And the last... Sorry, what? No, I don't store. I don't store the red in the fridge after I open it personally, or even. I keep it in a not in a warm place. I try to keep it in the shadow at, at home, but technically in a restaurant, it should be stored at 10 degrees. What about the white? Red. White? The red, the red, the red. 
the red wine. Yeah, yeah. White is a different story. White, white I keep it in like, the white I keep it in the fridge. Yeah. The yeah. white basically you, in the fridge. you want to minimize the 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 amount of times you're changing the temperature on something. So anytime you're going cold to warm to cold to warm, you're you're abusing the wine a little bit. It's it's shocking its system and it just like just like us as people don't want to go back and forth back and forth back and forth so if you're going to pull that wine out the the white out of the fridge enjoy a glass and the next time you're going to enjoy it you want it at that temperature too then put it back in that fridge but red if you've if it's come out of a coolish cellar and you've opened it and you've had it at the temperature you're going to enjoy that leave it at that temperature until the next time you you open it and, and rule of thumb for both three to five days, you don't really want to be like my mom who has it for like three weeks and thinks that that's normal. Yeah. Unless unless you're going like a port and then, then you have a month. No, I don't think she's drinking port. But I'm just, um, but in terms of like a fortified, then then you're looking at, I mean, a lot of people hold on to it a lo- little bit longer, but obviously so. Why you can go a little bit longer for me than five days? You can do a week, nine days, stretch max in the fridge, clearly, after it's open and pumped. You can go about nine days if it's pumped. If you're just putting the cork back, no. Five days, six days, thank you very much and bye. Like it's... Like that. Thank you very much and bye. I'll say yeah. that as a line. And if you don't finish it, then cook with it. With yeah, it. exactly. Yeah. That, yeah, there we go. But I don't think anyone who's listening to this podcast is going to have any problems with finishing it. Um, okay. I, I've been swirling this glass of white the whole time. Why do we swirl a glass of wine and do we need to be doing that with white and red? Yes. Yeah. <laughs> why do we, so why do we swirl the wine? I keep uh, the mini open up. Well, go nuts. Sorry. No, you go nuts. Yeah. So by swirling, you're introducing some oxygen uh, to the wine and allowing the the aromatics to be lifted and funnel up through the glass. Um, the my if if there's one thing that listeners could take home from a suggestion of tasting from Savannah, <laughs> it's to close your eyes. You so the less. Um, the more senses you can you can alleviate to just focus on on taste and smell and and feel the the stronger those senses will be so if your eyes are closed and you're not distracted by the other people in the room um and if it's quiet it's much easier to hone in on what does it taste like what's it smell like what does it feel like so I think it's, you know, a lot of people will, the, it's important to look at the wine, look at the color first, but as you're smelling and as you're tasting, close your eyes and be in a quiet space. So I love that. And in the, cause I mean, we could go for hours here um, and then I'll be on the floor. I'll be, the, the microphone will be dangling from my desk. So <laughs> to, to bring this episode to an end, I would love if we could maybe go around the table and everyone could share one fact or reality or observation or something about wine that a lot of people don't understand or don't know and that you would want people to know. Okay, I'll go first. It Wine and food pairing is more important, in my opinion, than people think. 
Um, obviously drink what you like, eat what you like. Um, you know, that, that stands out, but you, if you, if you enjoy both, if you like cooking and you like drinking wine, really try to coordinate, um, you know, something that like pairs well. And then, and one of the things I always like to tell people, cause a lot of people don't think it's important, but I think it is. And also like figuring out which one of them is going to lead the dance. So if you go and you really want to drink a certain wine from somewhere, buy that wine and then figure out what food probably will pair with it. And then sip the wine before you make the food, sip it while you make the food, and then have a glass with the food and see how it goes. And maybe a glass afterwards or a sip afterwards. And then, and then see the progression, how you enjoyed the wine on its own with the smells in the air of as you're cooking it with the meal. And then afterwards, after your palate has finished the meal and see how that, that experience was. But I, I, I do think that like wine helps enhance food and food helps enhance wine more than people think. It's sacred. It's mm-hmm. like this really ancient practice that's been going on for like eight, 10,000 years. Um, and that as much as as old as as it is it doesn't have to be scary um but to really that it's it's got so much uh weight and culture um and geography behind it and it's one of the most for me beautiful ways to explore the world Mm. through through the lens of wine there are so many places um that that wine is is made, or that all spirits are are made too. Um, but it's a really uh, celebratory, special way to look at um, the globe and to connect with people from all over, uh, and to enjoy mindfully and in moderation always. Um, yeah, I love that. Yeah, Giacomo, dimmi. I agree with both of them. I think, um, yeah, both what they said is very important. I think that for me, my take is that, first of all, respect it, as Savannah was saying, because it's something very old. And second, I wouldn't, don't get stuck in your three, five bottles of wine or your favorite grape. Because as you can see from this conversation, this is a huge world. <laughs> like there's certain like... There are certain levels of sommelier. We are like certified is the basic. Then there's advanced and there's master. So those guys, the master guys, but even the advanced, know way more than us most of the time. And even them, they don't know much. Like it's a huge word. And if you're stuck with one conviction, that's probably not true. That, that's probably not what, that's like, if you like Cabernet Sauvignon from uh, California as an example, you try the same grape from another country, completely different experience. So experiment. At the end of the day, it's what you like. Like, it's your own personal taste. We're here to help. We're here to guide. But at the end of the day, it's your choice. But don't get stuck with the same thing for 20 years. Because there's no point. At that point, then drink uh, always Coke. And that's it. Like, it's... It's a very vast world, and uh, it's magical if you get into it. It's scary to get into it, but once you're into it, once you try, you understand a little bit, it's incredible. 
It's just that before we arrive at that point, it's it's a bit of work. <laughs> it's such a great starting point too. If you go like wine, and then that can go into like that neighboring region to like that province to that country to that area of the world. Like there's so much that you can learn if you just start from that singular grape and it can expand into understanding a culture, like a certain culture in a country. Then you learn about that country's history and then that, and it grows and grows and grows. Um, Yeah. It's, yeah, it's pretty cool. My takeaway will be that I know this is a little corny, but wine has some pretty amazing experts to talk about it, including you three sommeliers and uh, I want to thank you guys so much for giving your time, for helping make the world of wine a little less scary, and most importantly, for helping people remember how sacred and significant and beautiful this drink really is. Um, thank you guys so, so, so much. And Oh, where can people meet you or find you each um, when we're sort of back, <laughs> back to normal? Back to normal. Yep. Giacomo? Uh, I work in three different places. I work as a bartender, server, a libretto, the pizza place, in uh, the one in university specifically, and I'm working all about that specific one. I work at uh, Chado, fine dining uh, Portuguese restaurant. And I work at uh, Montecito, bartender, uh, server, and sommelier on the floor. Though. So I, I work in three different places. Beautiful. And I will, uh, I'll put your full name in the descriptions that if anyone wants to find out more and get more of that Italian accent, uh, can't promise the ladies won't be flooding your inbox. <laughs> Anna? Um, so I just moved home from Australia. Okay. Really jobless. So if anyone's listening and hiring and looking for a song, uh, uh, get in touch. But uh, <laughs> welcome back home. Good time can, to come back home. Yeah, you can find me. Um, I have two Instagram handles. My personal handle is Savvy Robinson. S A V V Y Robinson. And then my wine uh, handle, which is just a just being launched is uh, Yogi Weinstein. Yogi Weinstein. Love it. Yeah. And Mr. Ian. Um, so like Savannah, I just came back from Australia as well, but I wasn't, um, but I, I, so anyways, I still work at, uh, at John and Son's Oyster House, uh, downtown Toronto. Um, great little hole in the wall, seafood spot come in and, uh, you know, we're, we have a really good atmosphere there and uh, we do a lot of chatting and yeah, it's a lot of fun there. And then um, might be opening up my own um, wine and tapas bar as well in the East end of Toronto um, in the next year or two. So stay tuned to that. Um, and I think it, it, just from my words only, it's, it was a pleasure to do this. Uh, it was a lot of fun. We're always down to talk about wine. So you know, I'll speak for myself. I'm sure I'm speaking for everyone saying that we would love to do this again. And, uh, yeah. to, and thank you. Yeah. Thank you for having me. Thank us. you guys so much. And, uh, someone should probably check in to make sure I'm still breathing in the morning. <laughs> uh, I'm about to go for glass three of this beautiful glass of wine. Thank you guys. Oh, our thank pleasure. You. Thank you.